0: Welcome, podcast friends. We're back with another fun show today. Our guest is Rex Salisbury, a founding partner of the A16Z FinTech team and is now a solo GP with Cambrian Ventures. In today's episode, Rex shares an overview of Cambrian and the benefit of the FinTech community he's built over time. We touch on the three-body problem and how it relates to venture capital, the competitive advantages of different VC models, and why he believes you can be consensus and win in venture capital. One more thing before we get to today's episode, whether you listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or another platform, go ahead and leave us a review. We love to read them and it helps people find the show. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Rex Salisbury. Rex,
1: welcome to the show. Hey, Meb. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Where's here? Where do we find you today? I'm calling in uh, from the Presidio in San Francisco, where you can find me most every day. So I both live and work here, spend a lot of time running. Great backyard to have, but still be in the city.
0: Give us a quick uh, Rex background, because, you know, you left the warm fuzzy confines of one of the most storied and successful venture capital firms to go out on your own, which I imagine is a little exciting but nerve-wracking at the same time. Give us a little origin story on you, um, how you came to where you are.
1: Yeah, so I kind of accidentally ended up in venture capital and starting helping start the fintech practice at A16Z and Dresden Horowitz. That's because my initial foray into venture, but how I ended up with this fund, so this is Cambrian Ventures Early Stage FinTech Fund, which I'm deploying out of now and, and started January of 2022, actually takes me kind of way back in that at uh, one point in time, I was an investment banker, learned a lot, totally hated it, quit my job, moved cross-country. I was just excited about the opportunities for like building new things and financial services, specifically around using technology. So I was like, I want to work in FinTech, Right. But I'm an investment banker. So I'm getting offers, but it's like, come work in finance for this, you know, financial technology company. It's like, I don't want to work in finance. <laughs> for, for Like, I want to do something else. So I had uh, taught myself to code, even done a coding boot camp. So I came out here, I'd gotten a few offers in those kind of nebula- nebulous, like finance ops roles uh, at early stage companies. And I was like, I don't want to do that. So instead, I actually went full in on the engineering side of things. And I joined a company called Syndio, working as a kind of lead back and engineer, building a fully automated online mortgage pre-approval with one of the co-founders of SoFi, Andy Kara, who is my CTO there. That company was a, a failure. Really great learning experience, great team, had an amazing time. One of the things I built there was this, like I said, fully automated online mortgage pre-approval Think like Rocket Mortgage, push button, get mortgage. I built out kind of the APIs to power a similar experience like that. And I was like, oh, this is really this is Circa 2014. This is really cool. Like mortgage, one of the most important financial products in a consumer's life. It's incredibly painful to get a mortgage, right? It takes like 3 months, it's incredibly costly, there's all this documentation involved. Like let's try and figure out how we can simplify that process. And so I thought we built some pretty interesting technology about that. But meanwhile, across like all of financial services, you have these software engineers and founders working on other problems. And I'm in San Francisco now. I like, I want to talk to those other people who are working in other corners of financial markets to kind of build new things that are cool and exciting. And so I started convening people and building community for founders, you know, product managers, software engineers to talk about things they built and launched in fintech. So 2015, I think it was, we had our very first meetup in downtown San Francisco, for Cambrian, the community. And we had presenting there, my team, demoing the application we'd built at Cyndio. We had the Plaid team demoing their API, and then we had a third team demoing an application they built largely on top of Plaid. And so from that kind of core kernel of just like interesting people talking about things they built in FinTech, Cambrian, the community really took off. And basically, by 2019, had you know 15,000 newsletter subscribers, 5,000 meetup members, was running monthly events in San Francisco and in New York, I had two annual summits, quarterly jobs fairs, just a whole lot of stuff going on. And I was getting a lot more energy from doing the ecosystem level work, and I've been pulled into investing and advising companies over the years. And so I actually quit my job, went full time on Cambrian, the community, to run it as an events business. So the plan was to raise a small fund. But then uh, A16Z reached out to me and Jerson and Horus. They're like, "Hey, we're starting a fintech practice. We love what you've done. Like you understand financial markets from your time in banking. You clearly understand like how to think about an ecosystem and kind of marshal people and resources through your time building community at Cambrian. We're going to start a fintech practice at A16Z. Why don't you join us?" And help build that out, and so I was the first partner who was brought on externally there, with the understanding that I could stay for two years, help build out that practice, and then if I wanted to go out and still go and do my own thing. And so, spent two years there, focused primarily on the Avesti side of things. Had an amazing experience, great team, amazing opportunity to see you know one of the big names in venture capital go from when I joined, call it hundred people, they're going to end twenty twenty two at about five hundred people, um, similar kind of scale in terms of AUM as well. But really, what it came down to is like I built this community. I had this kind of really deep connection to like early stage fintech ecosystem. And by being independent, I get to leverage a lot of those relationships and networks that I've built that are specifically you know well designed for supporting companies at kind of the earliest stage. Um, and so now I exclu- focus exclusively on investing on in kind of first money in checks for companies with U.S. go to markets, um, usually like a 500k initial check. And then the fund itself has kind of a community flavor to it, and that we have. As LPs in the fund, a lot of the top founders in the ecosystem from places like SoFi, Plaid, Betterment, kind of the list goes on. We've got 20 plus folks across all sorts of verticals from wealth tech to insure tech to real estate, you know, financial software, the list goes on.
0: So, there's a couple of jumping off points I think are pretty interesting before we kind of get in deep into to fintech and, and what you guys are looking for. Um, the first being, you know, obviously you have an awesome pedigree at A16Z, but Building the community ahead of time, I imagine, is a pretty unique and valuable asset when deciding to launch a fund. Would love to hear a little bit of that because the way you've decided to do this is essentially as a a solo GP, right? And you can confirm that. I, I don't know how big your team is now, but I'm assuming it's not 500. So, uh, you know, Rex Incorporated is that something? Also, it feels like. May not have been possible 10, 20, 30 years ago. I don't know. Like it, it seems like a more modern invention that is a little more recent. So tell us a little bit about the decision to be solo as well as kind of the community aspect, if that was a, a big help in, in launching this sucker.
1: Yeah. So first, to answer the one question I am a solo GP, and that's the plan for the, the foreseeable future. Um, I do have a lot of really great folks supporting me, though, in various capacities. And then in particular, even though I'm a solo GP, I draw a lot from the resources of the community that I built. So I already kind of mentioned the 20 founders for LPs in the fund. I also have a lot of connectivity to other folks in the venture ecosystem. And one of the other kind of big community apparatus I built up recently during the pandemic is we have a Slack community of 1,500 plus fintech founders. And so I think as, to, as far as I know, the largest kind of online group of fintech founders out there. And that's so I'm constantly in contact and communication With lots of folks in the ecosystem, whether it's our portfolio companies, those 1500 founders in the Slack, the founders who are LPs in the fund. So, like, yes, I am a solo GP, but to your point, like having a community apparatus is incredibly helpful for me and the work that I do, and incredibly helpful for me to kind of marshal the resources of that community to support our portfolio companies. But, you know, the community is also something I built to create value for the ecosystem just because I was passionate about the ecosystem like interacting with other folks. And I started it six years ago, and so now I get to kind of use some aspects of that to what I do in my day job as an investor. But I'm still focused on trying to just create general value for the ecosystem by facilitating a lot of connectivity between all of the different players within FinTech. I think FinTech is a really interesting category, you know, say versus enterprise SaaS or consumer software, where it's by nature more highly networked, in part because it's so highly regulated. Right? If you're building a financial product, you're going to need certain kinds of licenses, legal counsel. You're going to need various infrastructure providers. You're probably going to need other partners and channel partners. And so there are all these reasons why founders within the fintech ecosystem have arguably more need to kind of connect with each other than you do if you're building a consumer social app. Right. Like if you're building a consumer social app. You don't necessarily need to talk to all the other consumer social app people because there's not necessarily a whole lot you can do together. But in fintech, it's like highly collaborative in terms of you know why you might need to be working with other folks in the ecosystem. So I think why a community approach really matters. And then you also had a, a statement like, "Could you do something like this?" You know, thirty years ago, no, it would be the, <laughs> the very short answer. But even for me personally, I don't think this is something I would have done even four or five years ago. I think one is LP appetite and interest in backing solo GPs. That's kind of a new category of thing. So that wasn't there. Two, even if you did have the appetite and the interest, the idea that if you wanted to fundraise for a fund, you could do a lot of that remotely, which I did. That just wasn't in the water. I've got two kids. I've got a five year old and a two year old. And so like the idea of spending, you know, months on a plane just going to talk to people is I probably would have just said like, thanks, but no thanks. So LP appetite for solo GPs, the idea that community matters, I think is kind of a new idea. It's something that I've been doing for a long time, but I feel like has become like more hot or topical just in the last two years, in part because one of the big things people talk about in web3 is like how web3 is a community oriented movement right so lp interest um, the ability to raise remotely and then also you know this is where kind of the fintech side of things is just some of the infrastructure that allows you to operate firms there are a lot of different platforms you can launch a fund on top of now right there's angelist there's sidecar there's carta there are and those are kind of more holistic platforms to some extent although you still need a lot of other support. There's also things you can use for like doc management, rights management. Like there's all of this stuff that makes it more feasible as a solo GP to have like great tooling that makes it a little bit easier and faster to get up and running than it would have been, you know, several years ago. And I think that's really exciting and you're seeing a lot of people experiment with different models in venture. I think one of the most notable ones being that of the solo GP because if you break down a venture firm like the most atomic unit is an individual partner. And if you think about like, you're going to have a Nobel laureate on your show, I think later today, but like another great economist, Ronald Coase, you know, like the Coase theorem, the theorem of the theory of the firm is that a firm is something where the internal transaction costs are less than the external transaction costs. And so if you actually make it easier to create venture firms because of kind of the substrata of both the infrastructure that exists, as well as the kind of like LP appetite and sources of capital that exist, you should expect to see new ways of being within the the whole kind of venture ecosystem. And that's why it's, it's be fascinating for the next decade to see how venture capital as an ecosystem evolves, given all of these kind of shifting components in terms of how you can think about building a firm.
0: So. Did you end up building the fund on one of these websites you mentioned, or partners, or did you do it a little traditional way? How'd you go about it?
1: Yep, I run a traditional fund on top of the AngelList platform, um, and so they help me out with a lot of the back office oriented stuff. And then I also have other folks that I've brought in who are not necessarily technology oriented partners, but in part because there are more solo GPs and more emerging managers now. There are folks who are well-designed from a service perspective to support that. So I have an outsource COO, CFO group that is kind of well-tailored to working with those platforms and specializes in doing and supporting emerging managers. So both the like technological components, but also the, even the service and people-oriented components have gotten more developed for that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. One of the cool parts is in much the same way that a lot of the terms of startup funding has been templated. You know, the fun side now is too. So it's in many ways, like pretty turnkey, which is great to see. We joke about this a lot in our business with launching an ETF is is in many of the same ways. Now, a lot of the frictions and costs, um, we've done shows with friends from uh, ETF Architect, as well as Tidal and others that kind of let you white label or launch a fund pretty pretty simply. Because if you look back on it, 90-some percent of the terms are pretty standard. And so then it's just getting the plumbing. It's crazy how uh, much
1: everyone at every level of financial services pays lawyers to do basically the same thing. <laughs> like, it's yeah. just insane. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: there's still a lot of fat out there because that's my probably number one line item as well. That's very, uh, very personal comment. Um, with, uh, <laughs> with everything that's uh, SEC registered tends to get expensive with a legal team. We love our group. We actually use a San Fran, old school San Fran business. Uh, so shout out to as Freeze as well as Morgan Lewis. Great, uh, great teams. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the venture space in general, and then we'll dig into fintech and kind of what y'all are doing specifically. We've talked about a couple trends, you know, that it going on in VC over the past decade or two. What else is on your mind as you look around the VC landscape that seems to be shifting? There's a lot of money floating around the past 15 years, which I think is great. Venture is at its core still kind of a tiny asset area relative to other areas of kind of traditional asset management. So when we say a lot of money, it's you got to put it in context. What are some perspectives on venture in general? Any other thoughts on the on the space? I know you were talking a little bit about uh, the three body problem concept, which for those who haven't been familiar is a, a science fiction work that I've read, or at least I read the first one. I haven't read all of them. I hand you the mic. What's some general thoughts? What's going on in the world? In
1: yeah. And have you read uh, Frank Rotman's three body problem, which is kind of take on equilibrium points and venture capital. I don't know if you've come across Let's or, hear it or not.
0: I've seen um, it, but explain it for the audience.
1: Yeah. So first I'll just say, and we'll dive into that one a little bit, but I think to your point, hundred percent venture has gone from being this very, very small, very, very cottage thing. Like I think one of the very first funds raised was like Kleiner in the seventies and it's them driving around it. And you probably know the story better than I do. You know, it's like a $6 million fund maybe in like 1970 that they've like, convinced everyone of what this thing is and kind of gets going from there. You can go even farther back, talk about, you know, like whaling and those kind of models. But but today, even 10 years ago, like I've got a chart up in front of me for capital raised by venture funds in the U.S. in 2012, $23 billion, which is like a rounding error when you look at other, other sectors of capital markets, even private markets. And then in 2021, it was an all-time record, like 150 billion, which is like pretty meaningful. But like we're, they're still, you know, compared to other markets, it's not not huge. But we're getting to the point where it is, you know, A16Z and Jason Horst, my old employer, in the like a couple of years while I was there, went from about 10 billion in assets to now I think it's north of 50 billion. So you're starting to get to this point where you're getting institutionalization of what was a cottage industry, while the kind of landscape for how you can you know, launch a fund, build a fund, what that can look like is changing. And so all that is to say we're in this really interesting period where it's becoming a real asset class. And it's kind of up for debate as to like what exactly it will evolve into as it institutionalizes. Uh, and what it'll look like is probably very, very different. And there'll probably be different players who specialize in different kinds of things. So I think it's a good point to talk about kind of the, the three-body problem, which is a piece written by Frank Rotman, who's one of the founders of QED, which is a fintech-specific firm. And he argues that there are kind of four stable equilibrium points that he sees as the likely places where venture firms can kind of specialize and be enduring, at least for this kind of next phase, maybe 10 years. And one of those are like scale partnerships, the like A16Zs, the insights of the world. Two are kind of the more early stage specialists and more of the kind of boutique type approaches or early stage generalists, specialists, I think is what he calls them. And that would be like, you know, the benchmarks or, or the first rounds. And then another would be kind of non-consensus alpha folks, people who really just go out and find new things that are quite a bit different. And then the fourth would be kind of solo capitalists, solo GPs who have very distinct brand value, very distinct value proposition for the founders. And so those are kind of the, the areas he sees. And the, the reason and how he gets to that conclusion, and he and I actually interviewed him recently to talk through some of this, is you can kind of look for historical antecedents for other areas that have gone through periods of change. I think one of the interesting areas to talk about, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, Meb, are like the big asset managers that we know today, Blackstone, BlackRock, Vanguard, three very different firms, but they all were born around the same time in the 1980s as asset management, especially for public market equities. Granted, Blackstone is more of a private equity platform. They all got started at the same time because there's that same period of institutionalization. I think we're at that period for venture capital today, whereas it goes from being cottage industry to an institutionalized asset class, you're going to see these birds of these kind of big mega firms in certain ways. I think introducing Horowitz has a very good likelihood of being one of those kind of defining that category and it history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And so there will be some similarities in terms of how the rest of it shakes out. And so this is where Frank talks through other kind of historical antecedents things like the consulting industry used to be had a ton of kind of boutique consulting firms. And now you have like, The big ones like Bain, McKinsey, BCG, et cetera, you look at accounting firms used to have a ton of boutiques. Now you've got the big four and a long tail of other ones. And so something similar is probably going to shake out in venture capital where you have some really big names that build out huge presences. But then you also have this kind of other sets of players who can exist within the ecosystem. So that's kind of the general a little bit of the general taxonomy both of the three body problem but I think a little bit of what is going on in in venture right now. I of course am biased but I'm excited about the the ability of solo GPs to go out and deliver value and the kind of the pitch there is that dollar for dollar these should be the most helpful people on your cap table because they're usually highly networked specialists who deliver very specific value to you and your company for the thing you need. So like my pitch at Cambrian for example is like look I'm highly networked into the space, but not just myself, like my connectivity into the community and the ecosystem that I've built allows me to marshal, I'm kind of access to like a network of networks, you know, like the 20 plus founders who are LPs and fund the 1500 plus founders who are members of the community. And just the fact that I'm a non lead also means that I'm able to collaborate with multi stage venture funds and lots of other people in the ecosystem in a way that's kind of unique relative to other players. So that's a little bit, I think, of breaking down some of the taxonomy of venture, et cetera. But I'd love to hear your thoughts too, Mev. I'm sure you've thought about it a little bit.
0: I largely agree with you. And we've been talking about this for a long time in the traditional public space said, look, the base case now in the public space is, is zero, meaning zero fees.
1: You can get a global ETF portfolio. It's slightly negative. Isn't there one that you get paid now? Or is it, I guess Fidelity has the zero. Right. So Fidelity has some zeros. It's
0: a couple basis points, but once you include short lending revenue, you're essentially getting paid to own a portfolio, which is amazing. Best time ever to be an investor. It's super cool. It's also the easiest time ever to light all your money on fire and blow it up with dynamite, you know, with access to trading, uh, really anything. So to me, that's like the competition. And there's still tens of thousands of funds out there that charge a lot more than zero, right? And so Again, it comes back to what is your value proposition. And so you have a lot of these legacy assets where people are paying a lot more than zero, but they essentially are just getting beta. So they're getting the SP 500 as an example for stocks.
1: It's insane. And I know you've mentioned this, before, how many SP 500 ETFs there are that charge like a 1% man. Like they just take a long time to die. So that's probably going to be true in venture too, that there will be these legacy platforms that are clearly dying, but it's going to take a while because these are 10 year funds. They have deep relationships with LPs. Like, you know, it can take a while, even if it's very clear they're on their way out.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, and and one of the best things you can do as a newly minted uh, GP is have a good first fund or uh, get a little luck, but that kind of christens you. There's been a bunch of academic research also in the VC space on this, that it christens you as someone who really knows what they're doing and gets a a much longer leash on future funding and in fundraisers. But like, let's say even if you're a storied firm that's done well, and you hit a couple of rough patches, like you still get a fair amount of time before that goes away. And so in venture and private equity have such long lockup periods, or just kind of time to fruition of some of these being well over 10 years, 15 years sometimes. But yeah, so the asset on the public side, I think the traditional players, you know, there's people, money tends to get cozy where it is until disturbed. And so the people that are only selling these when someone dies, when there's like a taxable event, divorce, or something really bad happens, like a big, fat, nasty bear market. But it doesn't go back, you know, to a lot of the traditional no value add incumbents. So I think you're spot on and that you're going to have, I mean, this has always been true, but it's becoming even more true. You have to have a very clear value proposition going forward in the public space if you're going to charge more than zero. I haven't seen as much of the pricing pressure in, in y'all's world yet or at all. Maybe there is, but it seems like a, a lot of the argument in VC is that, hey, you're, you're shooting for this top quartile. And if you can get it, you know, you're going to have a huge spread on the performance. So anyway, I agree with you. So we try to be our our tagline when we talk to people, we see you want to be weird, concentrated and different, you know, which some people like and some people really don't like. But you kind of have to, in my opinion, if you're going to if you're going to charge more than zero. So you have the situation where you got these giant players like A16Z. You have this new rise of solo GPs. You mentioned a few of your kind of calling cards and value adds. So let's kind of like walk through the process, you know, so you raise a fund 20-ish million, I think. And how many names are you guys targeting per fund? Is it 10, 20, 100?
1: Yeah, I'm targeting about 30 uh, and deploying over about two years. And that comes down to being a function of both how many great entrepreneurs do I think are out there in the ecosystem that I want to be backing? And how many entrepreneurs do I think I can actually support well? And my commitment to entrepreneurs is to be very involved for the first kind of year to two years, maybe even a little bit more of their company's life cycle when access to those networks and relationships really matter and can help them find opportunities they might not discover on their own. Once you get through your, I'm usually first check in, your next round of funding or your next two rounds of funding, you usually have a larger team, you have a sense of product market fit, you know where to look, you have a team that could build out those relationships. And at that point, and you have a board, at that point having someone like me is less helpful because you've kind of you haven't figured everything out, but you figured a lot of the unknowns out, right? And you know kind of where you're looking. Whereas what I can help is like identify the opportunities you might not even have thought to look for early on, as well as like one of the big things I can help out with is, um, you know, helping with subsequent fundraisers. So. When you say fintech,
0: it means a lot of different things, a lot of different people. So for you, when you're kind of under this umbrella, like what what does it mean? What, do you, what are you guys looking for in this fintech ecosystem? Are there certain areas of it that you think are... Uh, more applicable to kind of your wheelhouse and fund investments.
1: Yeah, I, totally. I think one of the things of criticisms of fintech originally was like, is it even a category? Like this was five years, like four or five years ago, there really hadn't been any exits. And then you had Credit Karma and Plaid. Of course, Plaid deal didn't end up going through. So it's like, okay, now it's kind of a category. I think now the problem is like, it's it's so broad of a category. It's like, what does that even <laughs> potentially mean? And I think what I'm excited about is just kind of the the next layer down of financial services, as well as kind of intersectional areas. So if you look at fintech as it intersects with like HR tech, fintech as it intersects with healthcare, Um, I've done one investment that's doing kind of a vertical software play in healthcare. If you look at in tech, there's kind of a bunch of stuff that hasn't necessarily been done there yet. If you go down to like the next level of just like software and data orchestration across all the platform, like there's a bunch of interesting work to be done there. Digitization of banking software, I think used to be kind of poo-pooed by a lot of fintech investors like, oh, you're selling software to like the incumbents who are going to die. And that's like, kind of learned that, oh, they probably aren't going to die and they will have like a really big role to play in certain areas of finance for a very, very long time. So like that's a whole nother category. Commercial real estate lending is another one where if you, I spend a lot of time in consumer residential mortgage real estate, very complex difficulty because commercial real estate lending and cer- is certain segments just as big, even less technology. It's an area where like most people are, haven't spent a whole lot of time who are technologists, but a few teams actually because the FinTech ecosystem has gotten so big, have spent really meaningful time building data platforms in that space or like other kind of things analogous where they now understand that problem, both as like, you know, there are lots of people in the financial and real estate markets who do understand it, but there aren't that many of them who are also technologists. Now you have people who are both.
0: And so you would, you would consider these to be like a, for the traditional vernacular, pre-seed
1: yeah, pre-seed is probably the best way to call it. You call it pre-seed or seed.
0: And so what's the range on sort of the market caps and checks you're writing for these, just for perspective?
1: Yeah, they range from kind of five to 15 caps, generally on a, on a post-money basis. I would, and just commentary in terms of how the market has evolved, when I first started out very early in 2022, I would say the window, again, skewed lower, but the, like the whole window of valuation ranges was from like 10 caps to like 50 And now it's shifted down to what I just mentioned to you. So it's kind of, it's finally, pricing is finally starting to correct at the pre-seed.
0: Good to see, because I've been waiting. Like, I feel like, and I don't see it like the way you do, obviously, as much, but I keep, I try to keep tabs on it. And certainly it was kind of going bananas the last few years. And then I saw it start to kind of correct earlier in this year, but it's good. I mean, it's good and it's bad.
1: Seed is the longest. It's like the most uh, insulated people, if it's your first round of funding, your choice is always just to wait. Whereas if it's your second, like you have to raise. And so you'll, and same for later stage companies that are burning through cash. And so this is the the part of the market takes the longest to adjust. And we're in a little bit of a weird situation right now where deals are taking longer to get done, in part because that's traditionally just how deals have usually taken three months for people to go through diligence, et cetera. But in part, because there's a little less clarity in the market as to what the kind of general market clearing price should be. If you think about selling a house in a hot market, you just look at like the couple of houses down the street that sold in the last month, and you're like, okay, this is how much this house should sell for. Now, if you're going out and you're raising, well, a lot of people didn't raise like new money. There are a lot of extensions done over the summer. Not as many people raised new rounds over the summer. And then your last comps are kind of from Q2. So you're like, kind of what is the market clearing price? So like, A, I'm going to take longer in diligence. B, there's less certainty about what exactly the price should be. And so things are a little bit weird right now as they reset. So it could be, you know, things continue to go even lower, or it could be they kind of start to stabilize or even go up because something else I'm sure you've talked about, like there's record amounts of dry powder in the ecosystem right now. And a lot of these large multi-stage funds, venture capital fundraising for 2022 was still at an all-time record. Even though the markets have slowed down, right, there's a little bit of a lag effect there. And a lot of these multi-stage funds do want to deploy into seed or pre-seed, and they almost don't know how to write small checks. And so <laughs> what that might mean is there might just be this kind of permanent kind of stability for the earliest rounds that companies raise. But we'll, we'll see. We'll have more more clarity on that in the next, next couple of months.
0: Yeah. Traditionally, this is sort of like a half million check, million check, or just kind of the ballpark for you guys?
1: Yeah, I usually write a 500k initial check.
0: Great. So tell us a little bit about how's the opportunity set looking for you? You know, is your process usually just sort of as a solo GP, you have a neat, unique asset, which is this network. Are, are most of the deals coming just through friends, through people you know? Like, how, how what's what's your process like? And where do we stand now as far as opportunity set? Is it overwhelmingly tons of great founders? Is it pretty targeted? What's the world look like for you?
1: Yeah, I'm really excited because I've been... In the last two months, I would just say the number of really highly qualified founders I've seen has actually been higher than it's been in the past. And I think part of that reason is if you are starting a company from scratch right now, you're not doing it because it's like this cool, sexy, easy thing to do where you can like walk out of your like brand name fintech company and get a $5 million term sheet in a week from a company or from a venture firm that hasn't done a whole lot of diligence. It's like, It's more work, and this is something you're really compelled to do, and you probably have a unique reason why you're doing it. And so I just feel like generally both like kind of a quantitative view or qualitative view that like these founders I'm seeing now are are really great. And then quantitative, just like the number of them that I am seeing and kind of actively engaged with is higher now than it has been in the past. In terms of how I come across, there's a lot of stuff, right? So I run, I run the Slack community. So I see a lot of folks who are joining there at the very earliest stages. I actually do co-founder matching about twice a year, which is mostly just a way for people early on to have lots of conversations, help ideate, and then sometimes also, you know, find their their co-founders. That's another area. The 20 plus founders who are LPs in the fund, you know, they send folks to me who are early on, uh, even if they're not raising, because I can be very helpful and helping them find co-founders, helping them refine their ideas, helping them do customer validation and discovery. So that's another source. And then I have a lot of people reach out cold on LinkedIn and on Twitter and through the website. Um, So there's kind of all these different sources that come together. And so sometimes it'll be someone I've never met before who reached out cold, or other times it'll be a team that I've known for a really long time through the community and just through the ecosystem.
0: Yeah. And it seems as an outsider, and you could probably comment on this, but that just the advent of a lot of the Y Combinator tech stars, accelerators over the past, I don't know what decade plus has raised the quality of at least what the, a lot of the founders know about kind of starting a company. Is that accurate or inaccurate statement? And, you know, they don't seem as green as to just understanding how this whole game works.
1: Yeah, totally. So yeah, going from zero to one is not as much of a dark art anymore, right? Like so much ink has been spilled <laughs> about like how to do this. A lot of that ink has been spilt by Y Combinator, right? Like you can go to their startup school, like their curriculum is essentially open source at this point. They've also done a great job of coming up with some standardized documents that allow you to quickly raise initial rounds of funding, the YC safe, et cetera. So yeah, I think the zero to one just from like Understanding what that looks like, even if you're a first time founder, you can get way more up to speed. But then think about the fact that there are now, you know, called a thousand unicorns. Like there are just also so many repeat founders in the venture ecosystem that the number of people you can talk to to learn from is greater than ever before. Oh, and by the way, you might be one of those repeat founders. So, like you look at the Cambrian portfolio today, a lot of folks actually have helped start companies before. So, But I think this is actually kind of an interesting question for what role does a YC play in the ecosystem or accelerators? I think before it made sense for lots of founders, especially almost every first-time founder, to go through a YC or, or through YC itself because there was the curriculum, there was the network, there was the signal associated with it. Whereas now what I see for most sophisticated fintech founders, whether they're first-time founders or repeat founders, is they're like, I don't really want to go through YC, nor do I need to, because one, their terms aren't as attractive as I can find elsewhere. Two, I kind of already know the curricular stuff. I have my own specific networks that are relevant to fintech, and their networks are great, but like, it's kind of a different type of experience. And so I'd really rather raise from people on better terms who have very specific domain expertise and connectivity. And so for me, like I generally, the types of companies I'm backing have not even considered going through Y Combinator because they're kind of like, I don't need that, right? But that's also because the ecosystem is larger <laughs> than ever before. So there still are lots of people for whom YC is a really good fit, but it also means now that the ecosystem is larger, there are some people who just don't need that which is why you have other kinds of firms who are doing other kinds of specialization, et cetera.
0: You also like this, um, Cambrian is like like such a great word for this, but you have, you start to see this, I feel like in other geographies, you know, you have a successful company and it mints a bunch of millionaires and all of a sudden those millionaires can now angel invest or start new companies and it just kind of populates this whole new ecosystem of, founders and angels, which kind of propagates, which the, this whole sort of snowball trend seems to reinforce itself, which is kind of like the Silicon Valley being exported to the entire world, which seems like a pretty amazing trend. Like it's it's really exciting to, to watch it happen in Africa and all sorts of Pakistan and other places now. Are you guys U.S. only for now?
1: I'm U.S. only for now. And the plan is to do that forever. So I think there are amazing things happening around the world. Just concentrating and doing one thing well is important. The U.S. is the largest unified market with good rule of law in the world. And a lot of what I do depends on networks. So if I invest in a lot of the great fintech companies in the U.S., there's lots of opportunities for cross-pollination across the portfolio. If I start flying to different continents, there's a lot less inter-portfolio connectivity. And oh, by the way, like my time only scales so well, and international flights um, (laughs) cost a lot of time so
0: yeah and plus you got you got two under five my wife uh said you know she said i'll make you a deal you can still travel once we have a kid but we get to pick and choose on uh which trips we go with you on so oddly enough they would pick uh they would agree to go on trips to dublin or uh, ireland instead of you know uh and i'm not throwing shade cincinnati or uh somewhere uh, in the u.s that um Chicago, even. And I said, really, we're gonna take a two year old to Dublin? Fine. It's fair deal. So okay, let's talk a little bit about you can take this one or two ways. It's up to you. Since a lot of the portfolios are in stealth, you could either talk broadly speaking about some of the things you're seeing that are pretty cool or ideas or sub industries of fintech. Or you can take what you know, what are you looking for that you haven't seen, you know, some areas or some things that you would say, man, I'd love someone to be doing x, y,
1: z. Or you can answer both. Our very first investment we did was in OatFi. OatFi, like I mentioned, is doing embedded lending for B2B platforms that do invoicing, et cetera. So like a a business version of BMPL or factoring would be another way of thinking about it. But it's this embedded lending component. If you think about being a small business, everyone knows cash flow is king. But especially if you're trying to get a sub $100,000 line of credit, It's just very hard for you to go to a bank and get underwritten for that because they're going to take a long time. It's going to be a very costly process. It's not going to be very profitable for them. So a lot of small businesses, to the extent they access capital, do through very kind of expensive sources like factoring. But even that is often like a separate area and can be quite expensive. If instead the lending is embedded into your everyday kind of flow, like the supplier who you're working with, when they invoice you, there's just a button you can click to get extension of credit. And that supplier themselves has a button on their end where they can accelerate the account. Like that's a very interesting way of just seeing business lending embedded into the regular flow of business as opposed to like pulled out and abstracted away into like a bank branch, right? Right. So that's like, A, just a very big and interesting trend. And there are also so many more vertical software platforms. Like, let's say your vertical software for someone to run a hair salon or a dental supplier or a trucking company, you're going to need to use, like, you know, a Stripe to accept payments, but you're also probably going to need to use some kind of software to do the invoicing. And then as part of that, you probably want to monetize to some extent through lending. Well, you can just integrate with OPEFI, and Ophi on the back end has various capital providers that they've built out debt facilities with who can then provide the credit for your supply, and you actually get a little bit of a rev share. So now you can monetize through financial services, through lent, like, you know, you can get a take rate from your, like, integration with Stripe. You could also get a take rate from your integration with OatFi and the credit you're extending. But you yourself don't have to be a payment processor, a balance sheet, a lender, and so that... Idea of embedded finance, especially as it relates to the idea of people building vertical software businesses that monetize through financial services, is like a really, really big idea. I think generally, and then just a little bit. I think this is interesting understanding how like the Cambrian community works. So I originally met uh, Mike, the founder of Ophi when. Well, actually, I originally didn't meet him. He joined my Slack group, and I didn't talk to him <laughs> for like months. I saw that he joined. I like. Send a general welcome note, which is something I always do, and then like a few months later, someone mentioned to me that they were raising. I was like, "Oh, that sounds interesting!" Like, let's get on the phone. And the first time we get on the phone, Mike's like, "Rex, it's like great to connect with you." Like, oh, by the way, um, our very first customer someone we met through like the Slack group. And I'm like, "That's great!" Like, I have done no work, and like the first person you're going to go live with is someone. You like met organically through the community. It's like, and one of our first infrastructure providers. So, someone they used to do some of the like loan management stuff. They're like, that's also someone we met. So, I was like, here's someone I haven't even talked through who's like interacted with the Cambrian community who has now gotten first customers, like infrastructure support, et cetera. And then I ended up investing, like I said, in the pre seed. And as part of that, brought in actually one of the founders from our 20 founder LPs to co-invest in that round because there's like good kind of overlap there. Also found some other folks to get involved. And then subsequent to that round did a lot of work in terms of anytime someone joined the Slack community or I just interacted with someone else in the early stage ecosystem who could conceivably want to embed lending into their platform, just send them over to Mike. They can have a collaborative conversation. Oftentimes those are also very early stage founders who are trying to figure out how to build their business and they want to monetize through lending, but they're like, that's a lot of a lift. And I think that's on my roadmap. And Mike's like, look, we can help you bring that forward on your roadmap by making it a lot easier because of how our platform works. And so like just kind of the informal connectivity over time. And so they actually have a few customers that are going live that they've kind of met through the, the Cambrian network. And then, like I said, QED ended up preempting the their subsequent round of funding. They just did their announcement.
0: How hard is it to run that network? and And what I'm thinking of is traditional a lot of communities, you get people misbehaving, whether it's you know just being general social media turds, but also spamming and marketing, and like how hard is the community you have? Are you like a strict parent one strike and you're out, or like how do you monitor and just run that whole show?
1: Yeah, communities evolve over time, right? The Camry community I've run has evolved over time, started originally as just kind of monthly in-person events in San Francisco. We actually haven't done an in-person event of that sort for quite a while now. Now a lot of my community work is more virtual and through like the Slack group. Slack group today is about 1,500 members. They're all founders. They're all people who know what it's like to be in a similar situation. And so I've had very, very few instances of what I would classify as poor behavior. Um, I do worry that as it starts to scale again, like maybe that's something we'll have to think about. But so far, I've, I've been trying to keep it kind of generally constrained. So I I do think about that. But I've been fortunate that I feel like people who are founders and builders generally like know and respect what other people are going through, (laughs) and therefore, (laughs) try to behave accordingly. Uh, And that's generally been been my experience. Yeah,
0: well, when you're ready to host a LA happy hour, we'll sponsor it. So we'll, uh, you can come, down, come on down when you need some sunshine in San Francisco, and we can do a meetup.
1: Next year, I, I plan to do that a few times uh, in 2023. So I think LA is on the map. Probably we'll also do some in New York and maybe even places like Salt Lake City and other kind of fintech hubs that I've got, know, know lots of great entrepreneurs in.
0: You were going to mention another startup that has come out of stealth.
1: Yeah, the other one is uh, Keep Financial. So this is kind of fintech at the intersection of HR tech. If you think about being an HR organization, uh, especially in a post-COVID world where things are highly remote, and now employees are living in all 50 states, there's just like a lot of things for you to manage. And a lot of things you manage as an HR department are around coordinating compensation and other kinds of like financial flows and compliance for those employees. So there's just a lot of stuff at the intersection of fintech and HR. It's an area I've been pretty excited about for a while. My wife, as one example, leads like go to market at Guild Education. Education is a benefit sold into Fortune 100 employers, and they've done fantastically well. So into that general area, which I've been looking at for a long time, met Robin Catherine or re-met Robin Catherine, who are the founders of Cabbage, the small business lender. Their new company is called Keep Financial. They're a bonus management platform for employers. So this is an illustrative example. Burger King is not a customer of theirs. But let's say you're Burger King and you want to hire 10,000 frontline workers and you want to issue them a $5,000 signing bonus. Well, you could do that. And then like the people sign up, they get the money and then they like, don't show up after the first day of work or something. And you're like, well, that didn't work very well. But we're actually in the tightest labor market still for certain service sector industries, even as you know, some of the macroeconomic indicators shift, the tightest labor market in like the last 70 years. Employers are desperate to recruit and retain talent. I love this the value proposition that Keep says, because they're like, how do you recruit and retain talent? It's like you pay them and you pay them through bonuses. And under the hood, these bonuses, and this is kind of the financial product component, they're structured as forgivable loans that vest over a certain period of time. So now when I give you this $5,000 signing bonus, it vests over a certain period of time. If you leave early, it can be forgiven, like a portion will be forgiven, and then the rest can be kind of repaid at zero interest over some period of time. So now you as an HR leader have a new tool in your toolkit to think about how do I recruit workers? By the way, the same platform can be use to retain them. You can issue spot bonuses or retention bonuses. And so... And if you think about being a very large employer, like, it actually gets pretty complicated to think about how you would want to build out this program at scale. You're like, well, how much should it be? Like what about if you're at this level versus that level? What should be the vesting period? Like how do I actually disperse the funds? How do I actually manage like the state level registration because this is a loan product? Like all of those are actually pretty complicated questions. You're like, how hard is it for a company to pay bonuses? And you're like, well, you start to think about it, you're like, "Oh, it's actually kind of hard. Not only to do it just from a functional perspective, but to do it from a way that actually drives the outcome that you want. And so that's why I think they're a really interesting company. Because one, it's a great team. Like Rob and Catherine have built several businesses together before. Cabbage, they sold to Amex, I think it was around a $500 million exit. But they're, they're a team that's worked together incredibly well before. They can materialize a team. They also have deep connectivity into the kinds of leadership teams at the types of employers they would want to sell to as their initial customers as well as their kind of, you know, super enterprise clients in the future. And so this is like a great example I think of this is not a fintech company in a sense that like it's really an HR solution that happens to have a financial product that's like underpinning it. And you never would have had someone like a team that was able to think about how you build this Product, but then use it for a very particular solution. Like, that's something that's because of everything that's happening and just like the awareness and the quality of the entrepreneurs. But then also, like, they have a banking partner under the hood who's helping them, you know, power a lot of this, which 10 years ago, there were zero banking partners, right? Fast forward today, there's like 30 to 40 to 50 banking partners plus 20 banking as a service platform. So, there's, and this is where the name Cambrian kind of comes in, right? There's been this explosion the basic building blocks of financial services that are kind of reconstituted through technology that people can combine to new and novel ways to tackle problems. So I think Keep is a great example of like a really great team, fintech at the intersection of something else in some way that few people are actually thinking about. Like this is kind of, a, there really isn't anyone else doing this right now. But once you hear it, you're like, oh, that's pretty interesting and exciting, right? So those are, I think, two companies and two two great stories in terms of thinking about what the next generation of really great fintech companies can look like.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. I, I tweeted earlier this year. I said, you know, I went through the process of getting a mortgage and it was the absolute stupidest process I've been through in like a decade. And I'm in traditional asset management. I mean, we used to have to fax in our trade. So I'm well aware of stupid processes. And I'm like, I cannot believe this in 2022. Um, you had a tweet a while back listeners you can follow rex on on twitter he's he's uh, great at posting charts and other lots of stats. charts
1: lots of charts
0: you were complaining about you're like i had to pay 20 bucks to send a wire or something and if i and i called in and they they waived it and you're like can I just, can we just waive this in the future so I don't have to call in? They're like, no, you have to call in every time. <laughs> but we'll wave it if you call in. You're like, are you kidding me? Like, what is wrong with this? As you look back at your time at um, A16Z, it's probably less today because it's so new. You know, I've heard you talk about kind of thinking about consensus, anti-consensus when looking at kind of ideas and founders. But also, I wonder in your experience, how much of the outperformance if you look at kind of traditional deals you've seen and been involved in where at the time you made the investment so you check the box for yes so the portfolio that you've seen how much of the eventual outcome was related to initial conviction you know so excluding the ones you didn't invest in but just the ones that like you said okay these were in our orbit is there any correlation once it hits the yes button, uh, or is it a lot of randomness in the outcome as well?
1: You can be very highly convicted of some businesses, but I think, like, for the absolute extreme outcomes, it's very hard to know a priori. So, if you look at like Slack, one of uh, A16Z's big early wins, they literally were a different business that pivoted into another business before doing incredibly well. I think. You can often underwrite certain investments to like a pretty high floor, but that's actually completely useless. <laughs> like you get a really experienced entrepreneur who's built and sold a business in the past. You're like okay, the floor for this business is like two hundred million dollars, but that's actually <laughs> completely useless in terms of driving like what you need from a venture return perspective. I think there is an interesting thing around like what kind of investments do firms tend to do over time, and if we go back to the like three body taxonomy of like scale firms, I think if I think about venture is a funny uh, category because usually you have to be non consensus and right to win, whereas venture arguably you can kind of be consensus, and because only one person gets to do the deal you can still actually deliver outperformance if consensus-oriented deals still deliver good enough returns. And so when I look at A16Z and other large firms and you think about what kind of deals are easiest to get partnership buy-in, you have this kind of inexorable force where hot deals, deals that get a lot of term sheets, are the one the partnership gets most excited about. Because if you do like really smart thinking and come with like a clever thesis, you have to communicate complex, nuanced ideas across a variety of people. If you bring in a deal where there are five other term sheets from your three biggest competitors, including your three biggest competitors, you just immediately have like activation and interest. And so I think there's this interesting thing where over time, large shops become more consensus oriented because that's just the easiest way to get deals done. But ironically, in venture, that's the one place where that strategy can still deliver reasonable returns, arguably versus every other market where it's just you had the buy button and there's a bit ass spread and like you're competing against everyone else in the ecosystem. So that's going to be a little bit interesting to see how exactly that plays out over time.
0: Yeah, I wish I could go back a decade ago and start marking all the deals that I've invested in, which I think is over about 350 now and say, here's Mebs," you know, it made the yes criteria, but Scale one to ten, here's how confident I am. Because I look at the outcomes and I don't think I don't think the uh there would be any correlation. And oddly enough, like I like I love reading all these I get the behavioral side that people are trying to do that are often like, this is a hot deal, it's closing, it's ten times oversubscribed. And often I'm like, this is actually I'm, I'm a rarity, I assume, but like this kind of repulses me in many cases. Like I don't find like a lot of the ones where I look at them like, wow, no one's interested in this. And then looking at the outcome over the years, anyway, I wish I could time travel, but... Uh.
1: Yeah, no, but this is why you can also have multiple strategies that win in venture markets. You can be a consensus shop that always wins and does hot deals and probably delivers good enough returns. Probably the best returns are by non-consensus folks who find those deals no one else believes in. Those could be hard to underwrite, though, because those are usually concentrated portfolios with a high degree of zeros and some real bangers. And so then for you as the limited partner investing in funds, for example, you're like, was that genius or luck? And like to what extent is that it's almost easier to back the consensus shops, which probably just deliver good enough returns, than it is the non-consensus folks. So you have to it's an interesting question to think about, like, you know, where LPs should be thinking about allocating capital and what kind of LP you should pick what kind of firm, because you have to be pretty sophisticated to try and back the non-consensus stuff. I'm lucky I gotta do a little bit of both, right? I'm I'm not super unconcentrated, but I'm not super concentrated. I can, as a non-lead check, invest alongside tier one firms who are leading deals and have done that on many occasions, but also invest in deals that are not alongside tier lead firms. Or sometimes I commit and then it turns out like they are interested and so they come in. But you can do a little bit of both in terms of my construct, which is a little bit different. So
0: Rex, what's been your most memorable investment that you've been involved with? It could be either as your career as a VC or something totally unrelated, good, bad, in between. What you got?
1: Most mineral investment, I got a full ride to college. And so as part of that, had some money post-graduation and used that to buy a house that I lived in.
0: Was this a drone league sponsorship? Were you a uh, football lineman? What was the story?
1: I was not. This was just a general academic and leadership thing. So I was a Belk scholar at, at Davidson College, which is uh, like the Davidson version of the Moorhead or the Jefferson, but much less well-known than those two other programs. Is this the Charlotte Davidson? (laughs) This is the Charlotte Davidson. Steph Curry, yes, was a classmate of mine, if that was the next question.
0: I did a baseball camp there once upon a time many years ago. Beautiful, beautiful campus.
1: Great campus, uh, great school, great community. So anyways, yeah, I bought my first house right after graduating. And it was, A, a good investment, but mainly just a really good learning experience. You're a college graduate, so you're like, like, oh, I, I studied economics... Like, let's build a model to understand what the returns for this house look like for me as a college senior. Oh, let's go out and actually get a mortgage, right? Let's go out and then actually see what it looks like to own and operate an asset over a period. And I was actually living in it um, for a while too, which that's kind of an interesting arbitrage opportunity for a variety of other reasons. And I still own it today, and so I get to track it. And then you get this interesting academic exercise. Was it a good investment? And you, like, benchmark it to the S&P, and you're like, it's pretty good. But then you benchmark it to, like, REITs. And then you benchmark it to single-family REITs. And then you're like, well, what about my time? What about the fact it's lever-? Like It's just an interesting lens. And I've refinanced it a few times. And it's been during the period where the rise of single-family rental REITs has been a thing. So it's just been a great learning experience in terms of understanding how all of these markets work. And then it's also a reminder just how complex finance is. Because like, just to answer the very basic question of, was this a good investment? Just trying to figure out what the right benchmark should be. It's like a very hard question. And then not to mention like all the stuff around time, et cetera. So.
0: You were adulting, it would be the the 2022 phrase you hear more often, a uh, long before it was cool as a young college grad. <laughs> you don't see that too much. Rex, best place for people to find you on all the various places. Where do they go? They want to check out what you're doing, interested in your fun, all that good stuff. Where should they go?
1: My name's relatively unique, so if you just look Google Rex Salisbury, you'll probably find me on both LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can go to those platforms specifically. And then the website is cambrianhq.com, and there you can subscribe to our newsletter, find some of our other social profiles. And if you're a founder, you can also find the link to join the Slack community.
0: Uh, It was a blast, man. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Meb. Really appreciate it. Podcast listeners will post show notes to
0: today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the MebFavorshow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe the show anywhere. Good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening friends and good investing.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify, whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer.
0: With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments.